it's important to understand that the next step on transcendental dependalizing or on our emerging from dukkha can only take place when the preceding step has been completed. So, in all of these steps, we see that we can practice them, but we cannot really come to a totality of the next step if the preceding one is not complete. We can practice numbers of steps. We can practice the inside steps, we can practice the tranquility steps, the jhanas. But the fruit of all that practice only comes about when there has been a completion. So when we have looked at this step of disenchantment last night, we can assume with clarity that the next step, which is called dispassion, can only arise if the disenchantment is really within one's inner being and there are no doubts or any difficulties left. This passion in Pali is the raga. Now, the is also a um, prefix which means none. And raga is the same, or the root word, not the same, but the root word that we have in English for rage or raging. Not rage in a manner of fury, but raging, passion, viraga. So it's this passion, non-raging. All that inner turmoil has dissipated, it's gone, because the world no longer calls. The world with all its attractions has been seen for what it is, nothing but a difficulty, to say the least. One which presents itself always in the guise of something beautiful and attractive, and underneath it all there is no fulfillment. Now, if we intellectually agree to that, that's a first step. But it's not enough. If we don't agree to it intellectually, of course, we don't even have to consider it. There's no need to consider this particular step. We just listen to it as a kind of um, thought process or something like that. But if we intellectually at least agree to it, then we have a handle on it. Then we can really practice. Without that, of course, there's no practice. There is a great deal of wishful thinking on the spiritual path. And in German, we have a description for that. In German, it's called Friede, Freude, Eierkuchen. And it's, for us in German, quite funny. I'll translate it for you into English. Peace, joy, and pancakes. That's a great misconception. That's not what it's all about. It's the complete letting go of all that which has caught a hold of us. It's not getting new pancakes. 
So, without that kind of understanding, the practice cannot happen. It can happen to a such a small degree only that the minute it's no longer enjoyable, comfortable, um, has a kind of entertainment value and a distraction value and something that has a bit of a fantasy value, the minute it has goes beyond that, then the mind says, stop, no further. And obviously, that's far more common than going further. This is how the human being likes to have it. When one has found that in the world things aren't the way one likes them to be, then one would like to have the spiritual path the way one would like, to, like it to be. One always likes to arrange things the way one has figured it out it should be. So one can arrange anything, even a so-called spiritual path, but not the Buddha. When one really wants to follow the teaching of the Buddha, one's got to go along with the way he arranged it, and not the way we would like to make it happen. And that's not always that easy. It sounds perfectly logical, doesn't it? But it's not always that easy, because he arranged it totally differently from the way we figure it could be. So he arranged it as an emergence from all formations. Now I'll get into that and explain it in detail. But first, we'll have a look at this word, this passion, what it really entails. It entails having realized within one's own inner being, not just intellectually, but feelingly. And this is where the rub comes in. We are not so bad intellectually. We have quite a bit of training intellectually. We can analyze and we can think abstract and we can also connect. But the feeling aspect is the one that counts. And the feeling in this case means and in all cases also of the meditative doctrine, it doesn't just mean that we agree to something because it has value in it that we can see, but it means that we actually are feeling it within that any time or every time we reach out for the central gratification, we are having dukkha. When we feel that, we're going to stop. If we only think it, well, so what? We think so many things. And we think so many things which are not really the way it is, but just thinking it. It doesn't make that kind of impact. It's got to be felt. And in, a, in actuality, the whole pathway has to be felt. To be a me is a feeling, isn't it? You don't have to tell yourself all day long, this is me, this is me. You feel it that this is me. Well, by the same token, there comes the day when you don't feel that. You feel there's nobody there. Well, that's the whole difference. That's the whole difference in a nutshell. Simple, isn't it? But thinking it isn't going to do it. It's got to be felt. You can't walk around and say, oh yes, I do believe what the Buddha said. Very good, very clever. Um, so, this is not me, this is not me, this is not me. What good can that possibly do? If you actually did that, probably drive you crazy. Can't be done. So the whole thing hinges on the practice which changes 
one's inner being to a recognition of the feelings in their utmost subtlety. We recognize our own inner feelings in such subtlety that we become aware of the dukkha entailed in the fact when we recharge the sensual gratification. And sensual gratification is the whole world. We are not making distinctions now between people and things and food and uh, touch. Sensual gratification I'm using as a word that means a conglomeration of whatever there is. Everything. And that, of course, includes thinking. And you might have, during these days that we've been here, noticed, or at least some of you might have noticed, that thinking is dukkha. It's real dukkha. Nothing happens except irritation. And then, because of movement, irritation, not irritation of anger, irritation of movement. It's irritating because it moves. And then, the next step that happens from thinking is having viewpoints and opinions. And viewpoints and opinions are something that are solid and that are they are, have not only solidity and compactness, but they are supposed to have permanence because they are mine. So that's what thinking brings about. Now you might have noticed that some of that thinking, or all of the thinking, but you might have noticed that some of the time that the thinking is not not sukha but dukkha. So when the disenchantment has to come complete, which means that every time the mind arises in some sort of wishing and wanting, going out into the world, it is felt to be most uncomfortable for the mind. There's a most uncomfortable feeling inside. There's no peace. There's no rest. There is raging to some extent. Raging doesn't have to be right the um, utmost. You know, like getting on a motorbike and making terrible noises and going at 100 miles per hour or something like that. It doesn't have to be that strong. But there's this inner going out and wanting and wanting and wanting and doing and doing and doing. And having seen that in its most subtle form, as it arises within, because by then, by that time, as this comes about, the meditator should be able to have enough concentration to see all that within. Then comes that understanding that only if there is complete equanimity, about all that arises, will there be peacefulness. And that's called equanimity about formations. Formations are that what arise. Now formations are primarily our mental formations. But it's everything. Everything that arises. The whole world is full of formations, of manifestations. There are forms everywhere. And then we also have this brilliant idea that we like some forms better than others. We might like trees better than motor cars because they are uh, supposedly they have arisen in a natural way and motor cars they make terrible um, noises and dreadful smells. And we also have the brilliant idea that we like one person better than another. Or maybe we have a whole group of people Maybe we only like women or only like men. 
which is equally absurd. Or we might like only meditators. And we have these ideas of what we like, or we like only things that have, that are like paintings, or we only like um, um, classical music. And other people, well, they only like uh, jazz. All these likes and dislikes for formations, picking out one and rejecting the other. Well, the whole thing just doesn't work, does it? We, we then, we have to go along with these likes and dislikes. And life becomes ever more complicated. And we think these complications are something outside of us. Somebody is laying them on us. We're laying it all on ourselves. I think by now that should be clear, or is it? We're laying every single complication that ever has arisen in our lives is arising now or will arise in the future. We're doing that to ourselves. Nobody is doing a thing. And we're doing it because of delusion. We're doing it because we don't see clearly what it's all about. At this stage in the progression of insight, that has to be totally clear. If it isn't clear, then the preceding steps haven't been completed. It's perfectly all right. There is no, no blame attached to that. It's just this is nothing but an exposition of step after step after step. And in between, some hints where to look. That's all. It's just an exposition of how it works. So having seen that only equanimity about everything that there is, whether that is a tree, or whether that is a car, or whether that is the sky, or whether that is a man, or whether that is a woman. Only that is peaceful. This is not indifferent. Equanimity and indifference are totally different. Are totally different. Equanimity means that we have seen that everything is constantly arising and falling apart. That nothing has an interior substance. And therefore, this equanimity about formations arises. And then, when that equanimity has arisen, that's this passion. That's that feeling of no longer having to go towards the one and run away from the other. It's just all is formation. But all within all that formation, it's also recognized that within all that, there is no real fulfillment because of its impermanent nature, because of that friction from arising and ceasing, because of the fact that within that friction there's always Dukkha, and because of the fact that one is constantly on the verge of being deluded into believing the formations are real. Everything looks real, doesn't it? It's actually a very cleverly arranged puppet show. It's a marvelous puppet show, and we're paying entrance fees all the time. Constantly. We're constantly paying. We're paying with all our reactions. We're paying with all our wishes, our plans, our hopes, and our dislikes. We're constantly on the losing end of it. And actually, if we, as long as we are within that puppet show, of course we are, 
the actor and also the one who's paying the entrance fee to be allowed to be an actor in it. So the whole thing is really a double bind. But it has to be seen within. Within meaning the in-seeing of Dhamma which creates a feeling within. And this is not a feeling of disgust or dislike because equanimity does not contain disgust and dislike. It's a feeling of um, a little bit of amusement tinged with sadness. The amusement is that one has been taken in by it and the sadness is that one's been taken in by it for so long. That's all. It's a very subtle feeling. It's not strong. It's not a strong amusement. It's not a strong sadness. It's just that little underlying feeling. Why didn't I always see that? It's so obvious. It's like getting into the first jhana after having meditated for 20 years. For heaven's sake, why didn't I always see that? It's so obvious. Exactly the same thing. Then, having done this, having seen this, that all these formations, all this arising and ceasing, can never bring about that inner feeling of fulfillment that everybody is really wanting because of the inherent disquiet it's called that one sees all appearances, all arising as actually terrorizing us. That doesn't mean that we become very much afraid, but they're terrorizing us. They're putting pressure on us. We're supposed to be something. Then we don't look at ourselves as just being in a Punch and Judy show. We are somebody, aren't we? And this somebody is supposed to be something and amount to something and look like something and act like something and react and all these things, pressure that we put on ourselves and also sometimes feel that it's being put on us from outside, but that is what we allow to happen. So it's again the pressure we put on ourselves. It's a very heavy burden. And this heavy burden that we carry around, it terrorizes us because we are constantly being put into certain channels where now I'm a meditator, so I have to sit quite still. Okay. Now I'm a lover and I have to be really wonderful. And now I'm a singer and I really have to have a wonderful voice. And now I'm a philosopher. Now I have to study everything. Constantly we are being pushed into certain channels because of this I am. And that's the terror that is seen. Not the fear, not the word terror as fear, but the word terror as being constantly being pushed around by this. As if we were really some some master behind us that's always saying, go here, go there, do this, do that. But it's all in our own mind. The whole thing is happening in our own mind. And when we look at what people do, and if you look at it objectively, well, you only have to look at what you yourself do, but maybe that's not so nice. So look at what other people do, and then immediately you'll see that this is what's happening. Channels. And then this one channel doesn't work anymore. You think, oh, not so much fun. So you have to try another one. Start all over again. And in this kind of terrorizing that's happening, there are crises. 
And then people have all these crises that they have to deal with. There's something happening that uh, becomes very difficult because they can't be as they thought they should be, would be, want to be. It's all based on this I am. I am this and I am that. The whole thing arises and falls with that. So what we see at this time, if we have completed the previous steps, what we see is that all this is a mind-made fantasy, a mind-made idea, which is totally unnecessary and creates nothing but dukkha over and over again. And trying to escape from it through not doing anything is impossible. Because what we're being pushed upon to be anyway is to certain, in a certain human being that has to constantly keep itself afloat somehow or other with physical and mental and emotional things. We have to keep ourselves afloat. If we break down on it even for one day, the whole thing becomes a total mess. Everything gets dirty, we, we don't eat, we don't have any uh, cleanliness, we can't uh, have a whole day's work of uh, activity, everything breaks down. If we don't keep on constantly keeping this human being in order, no matter what we think we are, there is somebody there that's got to be looked after all the time. So within that, all that lies dukkha. Because of this belief system that this person has to be really cared for and get what it deserves, which we think, of course, it deserves the best, that we haven't really quite understood yet that what we deserve is exactly what we ourselves have done, which is karma. So we are constantly at the losing end again because we're always getting less than what we deserve. We're always thinking, well, there should have been a little more than that. So the whole thing just doesn't work. And then, of course, we get into crisis situations where we have lost this or that and feel that we've been shortchanged. All of that is seen as the terror of appearances, the terror of arising. It's all this manifestation. It's all happening constantly. And we're within it arising and ceasing, we're within that and we don't, there's no way out. It's happening over and over again, which again and again, because we need a way out, we like to alleviate this sensual gratification. It's our alleviation system, our trying to get out of it. Of course we don't get out because the sensual gratification has to be renewed all the time. Now, the other thing that is seen quite clearly at this time is the other three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, and substancelessness. And as we see these quite clearly, we are also completed in our understanding that only if we drop every single wish can we have no dukkha. So that means that we have to also drop the wish for liberation because the only way we can have no dukkha is there is nobody there to wish anything. 
that's called wishless liberation. That goes through the aspect of dukkha. If we have had enough dukkha, and most people never get enough of it, for some strange reason, they always get a, always look for a little more. Somehow or other, at just a little more. Because the next time around, they think they're going to be so much cleverer that it's not going to be so much dukkha. So if we've had enough dukkha and are not looking for any more, that is a possibility. And to go through the stage of this passion, if we have actually seen that within ourselves there is no little man or little woman that is looking <laughs> that is looking through the eyes or hearing through the ears when we have actually seen that there's nobody there then we have a chance to use that understanding in order to make it our path, our doorway. It's called the void liberation. The word void is also constantly being bandied about in some traditions and misunderstood. It only has any value at the point of emergence. Now the point of emergence is when we emerge from all this formation and manifestation into the liberation. That's when the word void has its significance. Otherwise, it's just a word. What's void? So, if we have seen that there's nobody sitting inside, we can use that as our springboard for that doorway, that all is void. And if we have seen the constant falling apart, the dissipation of everything, and have actually seen it with our inner eyes, not just because somebody said so, or we've read about it, or we have trust and faith, nothing like it, but the inner eye has seen that falling apart, then we can use that as our doorway, and that's called the signless liberation. So there are three kinds of doorways, signless liberation based on impermanence, there's wishless liberation based on dukkha, and there's a void liberation based on the substancelessness. And we can pick which one we want. They all lead to the same thing. But it's got to be a total commitment. And I'll talk about that total commitment later. We first have to have another look at what this passion actually entails. This passion entails no longer trying. It entails that the arising of the understanding of Anicca Dukkanatta is spontaneous on continuous. It means effortless effort. It means we're constantly connected to the Dhamma in our own heart. That that is the language that our mind is connected to. That when we have to, because everybody has to at times, step out of that inner environment, where, wherever we might be, and use the ordinary worldly environment, it becomes extremely tedious after a while. And one wants to step back inside, into the Dhamma environment within. 
there is only that environment which makes inner environment, which makes any sense, because it is totally connected constantly with anicca, dukkha, anatta. I'll use the Pali words, they're so much easier. The English ones are so long, and I think by now you know them. Impermanence, dukkha, and substancelessness. They're much shorter in Pali. And that inner environment, then, being always connected spontaneously, without extra effort, without having to think about it, without having to arouse that kind of uh, recognition, also has effortless mindfulness, recognizing the subtle movements within. The mindfulness of the outer body, yes, but particularly the effortless mindfulness of the subtle reactions and the subtle um, emotions, feelings within. And all of them are recognized as Dukkha. Each one of them. They do not have peacefulness. They still have this creation within, the creation of who is doing all this? Me. Who is having all this? Who is reacting? That constant point of grating. There's a point of grating within and that's all <coughs> churning around me. Because me obviously can't like everything. Me obviously dislikes something. Me obviously has hopes and visions and plans. Me obviously is going to become something. Me has to get rid of something. Me has to be loved, appreciated, praised. Me has to be supported. Me has to own. So how can there be peacefulness? It's not possible, is it? There can be sensual gratification, but there can't be peacefulness. It's not possible. That inner peacefulness, that lack of inner peacefulness, even though it may be very subtle at that time, is totally recognized. And therefore, the dispassion towards all that which me is connected to arises more strongly, ever more strongly, until eventually it becomes complete. There are certain things that people often ask about <coughs> and one of them is how long does it take to get to that complete peacefulness well it's impossible to say that but uh, how long it takes but the Buddha gave in given um, guideline like this he said there are some people that practice with a lot of dukkha and their practice creates a lot of dukkha for them, depending maybe on the circumstances where they find themselves. Maybe it depends on the teacher that they have. It might uh, depend on the even the climate, the food. It might depend on their lack of understanding. So they get a lot of dukkha. And it might take a long, long time till they have results. Then there are those that practice with a lot of dukkha, also for all these various reasons, and they have results very quickly. And then there are those that practice with a lot of sukha. They have a very nice environment. They have a very loving teacher. They have a quick understanding of what goes on. Um, they don't have great physical pains. They don't have uh, 
terrible emotional reactions. Their meditation is joyful. They like it. They uh, have nice companions. Everything is nice. But it still takes a long, long time until they get any results. And then there are those who have a great deal of sukha and they get critical. So there are four kinds of people. Now, one can only hope that everybody here belongs to the last kind. That's only a hope. Who knows? The, uh, the causes are our karmic results. Wherever our karma has taken us, that's what happens. And in this practice, if we really mean it, I mean, not everybody means it, but those people who really mean it, and there are always some that do, the karmic resultants seem to quicken up. More of them come to the fore, and they're either helping or obstructing. If we've made good karma, they're helping us greatly. And if we have made an awful lot of bad karma, they're really obstructing. So it depends on one's commitment, how much one is going to work to get over the obstructions if they're there. If we are being helped by very good karma, then it's all much easier, of course. But in no case is it immediate. It's a complete restructuring of the psyche. A complete restructuring through gentle and continuous spiritual work, which includes but it's not confined to meditation. It includes it, but that's not all there is to it. It has to have, as I've said many times before, the understood experience. So whatever happens in meditation, we've also be able to understand it. And we only understand it if we have sufficient information. And the information is, of course, the intellectual aspect. And that has to be also used. It's not that we now, at this point, can't use our mind. On the contrary, it's a restructuring of it. It is used in a different way. And from all experiences, that restructuring is a slow process. And it goes little by little. But once having come to this point, there's no turning back. Having got this far, there's no turning back. This is the springboard for emergence. This is the springboard for liberation, for freedom. There is no way that the mind can fall off anymore when discussion has been reached. At the point of disenchantment, the one I talked about last night, yes, it certainly can fall off again because it hasn't become solid yet. Because when the minute becomes solid, it goes to discussion. If it hasn't gone to this passion, it isn't solid. But now, at this passion, at this point here, there's no way back anymore. And the mind doesn't want to go back. In the beginning, of course, the mind has many excuses. This might be all right for monks and nuns. This might be all right when I'm older. It's okay for old people. Um, uh, what about all the things I, I would like still to do in this life? Uh, what about having a family? What about... and so on and so on and so on. You know them all yourself. Um, 
at that point there is no commitment but here having got this far there is absolutely no way back anymore because here the commitment doesn't even have to be consciously known it's there because everything else is no longer of any real attraction it's lost all its attraction that doesn't mean that the forest isn't a nice forest it is but it doesn't matter anymore it doesn't mean that people aren't nice people but it doesn't matter anymore the only thing that matters at this point to the mind is emerging getting out of this grating feeling inside that the me is constantly connected to something that is happening either good or bad that's that one point that really is connected to at this time after having done that then comes a totally different story again but here it has only this one kind of attraction left and therefore there's no way back nothing to do except go on this passion is therefore an extremely important point in this whole progression and we can practice it even though we may not have perfected this enchantment in fact we might still be very enchanted by certain things we can still practice some dispassion because some dispassion is better than none isn't it and it is also a kind of a taste what it's like when there isn't that inner raging so practice of dispassion is again that we have recognition we have that mindfulness of recognition what's going on within and we don't follow every whim we've got you see people who are not properly practicing follow every whim they've got even those that think they're practicing but those of course who are not practicing they wouldn't know any better those that are think that are practicing should know better but if they haven't been instructed they also don't know any better as an awful lot of um, diluted practice about following every whim one has within oneself is the um lack of disenchantment it is the support system for the ego so practicing this fashion is the opposite seeing those inner whims and inner moods it's for instance if there's a mood of irritation arising there's no need to get angry if one is practicing there's never any need to get angry when one is practicing because there's recognition no blame change mindfulness attention a person who is really practicing has in mind sub- subconsciously or consciously to make this person that's practicing purer otherwise what does practice mean we're impure enough we don't have to add on to it so that's all that practice could possibly mean that path of purification one the most famous commentarial work in the whole of the buddhist literature it's uh, not the canon it's commentarial work but the most famous one 
and the name itself implies what we're, what we're into. So practicing this passion goes towards our own emotions, it goes towards our own sensations, when we get a pain in the knee. Do we have to be passionate about it? Do we have to react to it? Do we have to have that inner feeling of, oh, I wish it wasn't there, or that's really bad, or something like that? Can we practice this passion, just removing our own reactions from that particular difficulty? There are so many possibilities of practicing this passion. Even though we may not have a completeness of it, we can get at it through seeing, aha, every time I practice that, some equanimity arises. Maybe this is a nice way to be, not to be confused with suppression. This passion and suppression have no, no uh, similarity at all. If they did, they'd be the same word, wouldn't they? Suppression is pretending it isn't there. The passion is knowing it's there and not reacting. Now that not reacting in this case, when it is the practice of the passion, has to be based on insight. Whatever m amount of insight we have gained by then, the insight of the arising and ceasing of all phenomena, seeing all phenomena as being equal, not having this judge and jury um, limitation within, but seeing the equality of all phenomena. All people are phenomena. All animals, all trees, sky, everything are phenomena. It's all equal. Each one has a place in the universe. Each one has a certain function. Each one functions to the best of their ability. There are beautiful trees out there in the forest standing straight and tall and giving a lot of shade. There are some that are crooked, almost falling over. There are some that are already dead. Each one functions to the best of its ability. No discrimination between phenomena helps to practice this passion. Seeing the Dhamma within, speaking the Dhamma language to oneself, as much as one can remember. Not thinking in the worldly connotations. Not thinking, ah, yeah, dead tree got to be cut down. Well, maybe it has to be cut down, that's true. But it's not that which is important. What is important is that there are functions for everything. Maybe the function of that dead tree at that particular moment may be to remind the one who's standing there of death. Maybe that's the function. Maybe the function of a very unpleasant person is to remind one of compassion and loving kindness. Maybe that's the function. There have always been teachers in many traditions, not just Buddhist tradition, who were sort of like wrathful people, yelling and screaming at people and uh, maybe pretending to be angry. They had that, they took that as their function. They thought that was the best way to imbue people with that spirit of dispassion. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. It's a practice. It's practicing equanimity. It's, but it's more than equanimity. 
it's a and it has to be it has to be based on this understanding of phenomena and by being based on that insight of phenomena which have arisen and are going to pass away again, it becomes not only equanimity, even mindedness, but it becomes an inner feeling of constantly reverting back to one's own peacefulness. There is peacefulness within. Whether one notices it or not doesn't matter. It's there. And having it there, one can revert to it. That is also called protection. When one has sometimes, there are occasions, when one has to protect oneself. And in order to protect oneself against whatever is happening around one, there may be things happening around one which one cannot connect to very well, where the discussion is going to go out the window, where all equanimity is lost. Then is the moment for protection of oneself. And not only... worldly, two-dimensional, and always disappearing activity, which is relatively true, but absolutely false. Within the relativity of our seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, all this is true. Everybody's got a different name, everybody's got a different meditation practice, everybody's got a different pillow to sit on, everybody's got different defilements, hang-ups, um, everybody's got different uh, qualities, ambitions. That's relatively true, but absolutely, totally untrue. And this passion recognizes that. That on the level of absolute understanding, Nothing is any different from the next. Now, I've given you many methods and many ways of getting a little nearer through method to totality, to that feeling of unification. For, for instance, one of the important ones, the four primary elements which concern the body. And with that, getting a little bit of a feel for this unity. But that again is still on the level of relative truth. Because what we see in this unity are solid manifestations. Everything is solid. It's all, it's all one, but it's solid. And on the level of absolute truth, it's all falling apart like a movement, a constant movement of a digital watch. All the time. Just coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. That's on the level of absolute truth. And with the optical eye, it's most of the time not discernible. There are moments when it can actually be seen. One of the things where you can see it in, and uh, you can try, is when a ray of sunshine hits the air and you can see, you can see all the movement in it. It's the same air as now which doesn't seem to be moving. But when you have a ray of sunshine hitting it, have a look. Going And since most people only believe what they can see with their optical eye, it might be helping you. 
But then, of course, the, the uh, mind, the desiring mind comes in and says, well, so what, so what, there's a bit of dust in there, in there. so what's the difference? I'll go after my things as just as I always have. That's not the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. That's the knowledge and vision of things as I'd like them to be. And yet, as much as I'd like them to be, other than they are, nobody has ever managed. Nobody. As long as humanity has been around, nobody has ever managed to make things as they'd like them to be. They've always been as they are. There's always been birth, decay, disease, and death. Always. It just doesn't change. And as long as that is there, it's much smarter to get into that stream and see what it really means. Because now, at this point of dispassion, at this point of the springboard towards liberation, even if we haven't completed it, all of that should be quite clear in the mind. The mind should have absolutely no problem with that. And it should be quite aware of the constant dying. Isn't every thought constantly dying? and a new one is being reborn, so what does anybody argue about rebirth? Isn't it very easy to see? Each thought is dead. You can't, nobody can remember them. You've got to write them down. And even then sometimes we don't know what it means. And then a new one gets born. And another one is dead. And a new one. And it's so quick, this rebirth, that we don't even notice it. And yet that is absolute reality. That relative realm that we try to make so nice for ourselves, and there's no reason why we shouldn't have nice surroundings, none whatsoever, that relative realm will never bring real peace. And most people are wondering why this world that we live in isn't peaceful. Nobody would like some war. Nobody wants to be killed. Nobody really wants to kill another. And yet it's constantly happening, isn't it? Wherever we look, there's some war going on. It's either they're really shooting, or they're arguing, or they're having a a fight, or they're breaking up a relationship, or something's happening all the time. And yet, in our intellectual understanding, we think it shouldn't be like that. And we are not the only ones. Everybody thinks like that. It shouldn't be like that. It's not possible. It's not possible because we can't find it in here unless we come to absolute understanding. In the relativity of the me and the you, there's always going to be something that you want that I would like to have. It's always there. But as soon as that has been seen, then we can really get at it. And then, having realized that subtle non-peacefulness, because even sitting here, this should be very peaceful, I mean, nobody wants anything, there's not even any sound. It's so quiet, and the weather is all right, and the food's okay, and the meditation hall is lovely. Everything's fine. Where is that deep, inner peaceful contentment where is that 
completeness and absoluteness of letting go of all wishes and desires. Not there. And this is the most perfect uh, situation that one can possibly get. And even in the jhanas, you're in and the bell goes and you're out. Gone. Gone with the wind. Or gone with the time. All gone. So within all that, it must eventually draw the mind to really see a different reality. And that different reality, I told you one aspect you can see with your optical eyes, but that different reality can be seen within our own mind. We have that wonderful opportunity and facility within us to become enlightened. We have that. Having it and not doing it is wasting a good human life. We have a really nice human life. We have the absolutely perfect conditions. And then not doing it is a real waste. Obviously, there are many obstructions on the way. I think I've mentioned enough of them. But what does that matter? When we went to school, there were many obstructions before we could get finished with it. When we went to university, we had many obstructions before we could get finished with that. When we uh, have a relationship, the obstructions are legion, and some of us even manage that. So, obstructions are no hindrance. They are just challenges. There's a nice story which I really like very much and I hope you like it too. The mother sent her little son to the corner store to get a jug of milk and gave him the jug and said to have it filled with milk, which he did. And then on the way back he stumbled and then he stood half the milk. And then he came home to his mother. And mother said, oh, look at you, Johnny. You spilled half the milk. He said, no, mum, I brought half the milk home. And this is the way to look at every obstruction, at every difficulty which arises on this pathway. We don't have only half an opportunity. It's not that we are being hampered by these obstructions. We are lucky that we have these obstructions because we have that other half in us which makes it possible to get over them. And the understanding which is needed for all that, which I try to explain, is only half the story. The other half is doing it. Doing it with the real commitment that here is the greatest opportunity of one's life. There is none greater. And that kind of understanding, that brings with it that wholehearted devotion, commitment and trust which makes it possible. Any step on the way. Now that is dispassion, 
And as you might guess, this evening we'll get to the point where this discussion actually results in something which is totally other and which we can call quite um, easily the fourth dimension. The jhanas and our elevated states of consciousness being the third dimension of which we are capable. Even discussion is a third dimension because it looks at everything in a different way. It uh, sees everything quite differently from the world. But then the next step will lead us into that fourth dimension where we don't have to look at things differently anymore because we are different. And being different inside does not make anybody different outside. It's the same thing in the end. First, the mountain was a mountain. Then the mountain is no longer a mountain. And in the end, the mountain is just a mountain. And that's one of those very nice Zen, what one could say, koans, which one really needs to investigate. I don't want to investigate it now, but if there's some other time, I might uh, explain it. At this point in time, you can ask some questions if you like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can say like that, but actually what it amounts to is that you see that the mind is pushing you around. I mean, pushing not you, the body, pushing the body around. The mind says walk, so you walk. The mind says sit, so you sit. The mind says eat, so you eat. It's actually seeing that the mind is in charge and the body is the servant and tries to comply with the command. Yeah, but you've got to include what I just said too. (laughs) Why? That's much easier than that. You can see in the mind the intention. Stand still before you start walking meditation. Stand quite still. And then watch the mind saying, okay, start. The body can't say, okay, start. It's got to be the mind. So when you do it very slowly, you'll see it. So you've got to do that, what I'm saying. Sure, you can also distinguish between sensation and emotion, but this is important, what I'm saying. Okay? Yes. Oh, the with wholesome um, motivation, you still have dukkha. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, that depends on the amount of wisdom one has. You see, if the wisdom is complete, that means that there's nobody in there anymore, then there's no dukkha. No matter what happens, there's no dukkha. But if the wisdom is only um, partial, along this pathway of inside steps which I have outlined and got stuck somewhere along the line and doesn't get any further and hasn't come to the emergence, which we'll talk about tonight, then, of course, there's dukkha. Because there is still the wishing for. Even with the generosity, there is somebody who is being generous. 
So that somebody, not only, not even, does that somebody who is generous look for gratitude. Most people do. But um, he might even have understood the teaching already to the point where he's not, lo- no look, not looking for gratitude. And uh, might not be even rec- wanting anything out of that generosity, which would be rare enough. But there's still this person sitting in there which was generous and now is having a nice feeling about this generosity and then the nice feeling disappears and then the person that's sitting in there says, oh, now the nice feeling is gone. What's the nastiest already? <laughs> oh, no, no, if, if one isn't generous, the dukkha is uh, double. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, well, there was no need to change. You did exactly what, what was right to do. The recognition and no blame change is only necessary when there is a change necessary. That when you, when you were recognizing the dislike, that it was necessary, no blame change. And then you did do the change by looking at the unpleasant feeling, having no reaction to it, and getting concentrated on the breath. So you did exactly what you set out to do. by using concentration on the breath. Yes. But the second time you did it. I did it, yes. Yeah. Mm. Sure. That's right. Then, then one can try to just change the dislike. If you can't get into the concentration, one can try to change the dislike. As you, when you change the dislike into acceptance, 
then the concentration can come back again. It's another possibility. Yes. Good. But you did exactly what you set out to do, didn't you? <laughs> okay, well, anything else? Um, I'm wondering if I heard you right at school. Um, I, I believe you said at one stage when you did fashion to go to writing quite well, that um, the person in the state no longer really fears what like, wants to go out and do what they the real world. And that it's fine with a drag to do that. Is, is that right? Mm, no, I don't think I said that. I wouldn't, doesn't sound like, like me that you don't want to go out in the real world. No, I don't think I said that. But what I would have said would be that you recognize the so-called <laughs> real world out there as holding no attraction. I mean, you, you, everybody has to be out there anyway. I mean, at times or constantly. It's the Dhamma language within which counts. If you keep talking the Dhamma language to yourself within, then that world will not distract you from the pathway. But if that isn't spoken, if we don't speak that to ourselves, then the world constantly promises something which it will never keep. And most people here, not everybody, but most people here are old enough to have tried that many times now. Not everyone. I'm after quite long. Have to try a little more, huh? Holly? <laughs> I'm still quite young. Ah, no, you mean the eight worldly dhammas. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and ill fame, happiness and unhappiness. Um, that you don't um, prefer one over the other. It's not easy, is it? Um, because there's equanimity, both kinds create the same kind of feeling. It's just, it's just equanimity. You know, somebody says, gee, a wonderful teacher, everything is so clear. Mm. The other one says, I don't understand the word you said. It's all completely muddled up. So what's the difference? It's a big shame for the person that's all muddled up, but in here, it's the same. Yes. Well, you see, if an enlightened person uh, stubs their toe on a on a rock, there is an unpleasant sensation, no matter what happens. But the reaction of the mind to that is one of equanimity. That's all. The mind doesn't get unhappy about it. So the emotional states are all equanimous. But the sensations can be quite unpleasant. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Y
Well, unpleasantness maybe. Yeah. It's all one of the same thing. It's mentioned as as sukha, but it is most likely also the state that is it's because sukha is a meditative state that um, the uh, state of meditative happiness is not always there. The meditator, the enlightened person doesn't always meditate. So it can be unpleasantness. The reaction to the emotions is the same. But of course unpleasant sensation is there. Physical. And the emotion is not there. But it needs to be done. And one has to start now. (laughs) Not next week, next month, next year, next lifetime. Right now. For what? For why should one start now? In order to have more peace. That's the only reason. Nobody else might ever find out about it. But to have inner peace. There's no other reason for it. That's a good enough reason, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, regarding uh, people, all people, uh, all people, regarding all people as equal. Well, that's from an absolute standpoint. There's nothing there but a manifestation. And when you see them as manifestations and having dukkha, everybody having lots of dukkha, how can you discriminate between one and the other? It's just a manifestation with dukkha. I mean, there's nothing to discriminate. You still might have to um, uh, connect to people in a different way because one person can accept one thing, another, another. But inside of yourself, you don't have to have any different feelings about different people on that level. People just are. That's it. They just are. And mainly full of dukkha. Known or unknown. I mean, you know, it can be in the knowing mind or in the unknown mind. But you might have to disconnect in a different way because some people cannot understand one thing. You see, this uh, example I gave the other day, I think, brings it out perfectly. An old Jewish woman dying in the Brooklyn Hospital of Cancer. What's the use of bringing the Tibetan bardo to her? Useless. Not to bring the family to her. So you connect with people on a different level, but they're all one and the same. Mm-hmm. On the inside part? Yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it hasn't been completed. Yeah. Yes, certainly. The, the experience comes and then it comes again because it wasn't complete. The inside wasn't complete. The experience hasn't been fully understood and assimilated, has to be totally assimilated. Quite so. It can happen many times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
You mean that that where you where you have the same feeling towards praise and blame? Well, metta doesn't necessarily have to have insight. Metta can have devotion as its base. No, devotion is a heart, is a is a matter of the heart. It's a, it's a, it's just a feeling of giving oneself. Well, no self certainly needs insight. Absolutely, absolutely. But metta can be generated in a heart full of devotion, and uh, and in a heart that is, uh, um, you know, has very little hate anywhere. You know, the greed people can do metta much better, but they don't practice so hard either. It's the hate people that practice much harder, but they can't do metta so well. So that's why this is a very, very clear distinction. Because a greed person is always looking for the, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And it's always seeing it too. And so it's always something nice in the offering. But the hate person doesn't like anything. So matter is more difficult. So a greed person with a lot of devotion has a great facility for matter. But the inside, but no self, absolutely, there's no way that can happen without inside. It's absolutely impossible. That is, that is inside. The word inside means anicca dukkha anatta. That's the terminology of insight means one of those three. Sorry, I haven't understood what you said. Yes. Putting the two together. The transition from from watching the breath to being the breath. The the transition is concentration. Concentration is a mental formation. It's not inside. It's mental formation. And mental formation is one part of mind. It's not either inside or feeling. It's uh, in, it's in calm or inside. And inside to be a, to be useful has to be based on that inner feeling. So we can have inside intellectually, but it isn't really the end of the path. We can understand no-self. I know hundreds of people who write books about no-self. Yes, it's an intellectual insight, but it doesn't, doesn't bring it, doesn't bring it with it, doesn't bring this passion. An experienced insight, yes. And they've got to both be there. You have to have the understood experience. So when you put your mind on the breath and you are the observer and it doesn't work very well and then you become the breath, you have an understood experience 
that in order to really concentrate you've got to be the meditation subject. Insight and wisdom are understood experiences. So it's not either or, it's got to be both. Insight has to have both. It has to have the experience and it has to have the understanding. And the experience you can say is the feeling because the feeling that has happened is that you've actually been with the breath so that's the feeling and you understood that it came about because you no longer stood apart from it. So inside is both. It's the understanding, the mental understanding and the experiential feeling. Yeah, got to be together. No, there have to be both. That's real inside. Otherwise you've got one or the other. You can have experiences and you don't understand, it's also useless. Or you understand and don't have the experience also useless. I mean, it's not completely useless. It shows the way, if you know that you've got to do more. But very often people who have intellectual insights don't know that they have to do more. Yeah, no teacher, no teacher, no teacher. Yes. Saint Teresa, yes. yes. So it appears to me, that's a personal opinion I'm voicing about Saint Teresa. I'm saying that she, that she was very adept at the third dimension, very adept, but that the insight is lacking. But uh, being a personal opinion, it may be totally untrue. But that's what it is, it's a personal opinion. Well, in order to become really concentrated, to become truly concentrated, you have to be the subject. And as you become the breath, even for a moment, uh, that, well, for several moments, let's say, then you can go from there into the meditative absorption. You have to be it. I mean, in the meditative absorption, if you stand aside and look at it, nothing happens. You've got to be it. So it's a actually letting go of that intellectual um, observation and just being totally there. The intellectual observation has no place in the concentration. Intellectual observation is for afterwards, what have I done? And that is probably the greatest uh, obstacle to concentration. The intellectual observation is difficult to explain, it's also not written that clearly. You know. so so, it's, uh, no, even though there is an observer, there's absolutely an observer. The only time there is no observer is at the past moment. There is an observer. But the observer mustn't stand apart and say, look at that, I'm watching the breath, isn't that interesting? Or, uh, breath, 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 breath. That's the observer being totally apart from it. You know, you ha- the observer has to become so minute that it's just not noticed. Making the observer very small. Yes. Uh, I'm going to give you the broader than that. I'm just curious to know about the terror 
And it depends which one you're talking about. They were being terrorized. Yes. Which is different from having terror. When you have terror, you're afraid. That also happened on an earlier stage. I explained that you can because everything is dissolving and if you don't have the jhanas, you get scared. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being, well, it, it, that's the, the um, um, traditional term for it. You can be say, you can also use the term you're being pressured. You're being pressured to do. You're being pressured to be. You're being pressured to accomplish. You're being pressured to not accomplish. You're being pressured. There's always something. Behind you, saying, "Soup, soup, do, get up, get down, have this, have that." So maybe the word "you're being pressured" is more, uh, but it is seen at that stage as being terrorized. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's a very strong word, but at that particular stage in the development, it is seen as such, and it is a sort of a terminology which is used. Okay. Which one? The tyranny. Yes, that's very good. Yes. Yes, that's very good. The tyranny. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. It's like the me is a tyrant. Yes, that's a very good word. Yes, I'll keep that one. That's good. <laughs>